Welcome everyone to Season 2 of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me for this second season of the show after about a month-long break. And for those of you who are new, uh, the show is typically about 30 minutes long or so, and my goal is to spend about 10 minutes looking at a biblical law, a law from the Old Testament, doing a little interpretation, application, and analysis, and then the rest of the time, about 20 minutes, on a particular topic related to government. Now today, for episode one of season two, is going to be kind of unique. Uh, It's not going to have a law of the day, but rather a one hour long or so interview with a fellow military service member and co-worker and friend, uh, Gordon Beecroft, and he is going to discuss with me the topic of democracy. And we're going to talk about it kind of broadly, but also apply it to the current situation going on in Afghanistan, which appears to be uh, an example of a failed attempt at democracy imposed from the outside onto a country or society. So, without further ado, my discussion with Gordon Beecroft. All right, well, Gordon, thank you for sitting down with me and having a a nice, fun, kind of open conversation here. I do have a couple things I want to hit on, but uh, kind of just keeping it open. Um, I guess the topic of of the day really is just broadly uh, democracy in general, and there's a lot of different ways that we could go with uh, that topic. Uh, The reason why it came to my mind recently is because uh, of what's been on the news, and, and this episode might come out um, weeks after these events took place, but uh, I just saw that uh, the Taliban were uh, just closing in on the capital city of, of Afghanistan, and that it doesn't look like things are going very, very well there um, for the democratic government. Um, and that's just what brought to my mind the, the concept of democracy and why, you know, why we as the United States might uh, put so much effort, you know, 20 years worth of effort trying to um, export our ideas and trying to have other countries be like that. And then maybe, you know, if the conversation goes there, we can kind of look into why it didn't, it doesn't always work that work that way. You can't always just um, have somebody adopt the things that you like and make it stick. So anyways, just wanted to open it up with uh, the basic conversation uh, topic of democracy. So I mean, what are your thoughts on the importance of or why we, why have we as a country made a big deal of democracy or kind of made it a center point of our foreign policy, international relations kind of thing? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> um, so if we, look at, if we look at Afghanistan, we could go back to 2001 when we invaded Afghanistan, certainly after 9-11. We went into Afghanistan, and really, it was a uh, a safe harbor, in a sense, for Al Qaeda, for Islamic extremists. You know, obviously, I had an occupation there to an extent, various levels of, of of occupation over the last twenty years, and now that's kind of all come to a head, and the U.S. is withdrawing forces, and now what we are seeing in the news over the last several weeks is the Taliban is taking back over control of the country yeah. and basically ridding 
the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan sort of out of office, right? So it, just looking at that, right, it was a benefit to the United States to promote democracy in Afghanistan, to uh, help establish the Republic of Afghanistan, a republic, um, versus the rule under the Taliban because we wanted to rid that area of the world as being a safe harbor for terrorism, for terrorist organizations, Al-Qaeda and others, right? Mm -hmm. So that in and of itself is a motivation to promote democracy, right? And I think if looking at Afghanistan, we can kind of narrow it down there, right? But I think more broadly, there is this idea that democracies don't go to war with each other, that if countries have are acting in their self-interest, but there's prosperity to be had through democracy, that self-interest can be realized rather than, you know, taking control of another nation, mm -hmm. uh, conquering other nations. The self-interest can be realized through uh, international institutions, through, um, you know, economic agreements, right, through, through global economies. Um, that self-interest can still be realized without having to go and conquer another nation. You know, there's a theory that democracies don't go to war with each other and that the self-interest of a nation can be realized through other practices than killing each other, basically. <laughs> if you will. So uh, would you say that it's, it's then like a, a kind of a desire to, to say like, okay, well, if democracies do pretty well, then let's, let's get everybody to become a democracy or try. And then if we do that, we have a higher chance of bringing about world peace or something to that effect and prosperity. Is that kind of like what you think would be the, the drive behind that? Well, I think that's part of the theory that war, in a sense, becomes, um, I don't know, obsolete. Mm -hmm. it's, it's no longer necessary, right? If a country or if a nation, excuse me, if a nation is always acting in its self-interest, yeah, then it can go about achieving that interest and in, through other means other than just war, right? If war is an extension of politics, but I don't have to get, a nation doesn't have to get to the point of fighting mm -hmm. and trying to conquer to, to achieve its ends, right? Rather than the means, the ways and the means being war or war making, mm -hmm. the means, the ways and the means can be through international institutions. It can be through economic agreements. It can be through security agreements, um, trade, whatever, what have you, right? Mm -hmm. If the ways and means don't have to be war and the ends can still be achieved, basically the realization of whatever the nation's self-interest is, yeah. then there's no need to go to war. War yeah. becomes obsolete. War becomes un un completely unnecessary. We can just solve problems without needing to fight. That's right. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, from your own studies or research that every administration, you know, of the United States presidential administration has had some attempt to try to do this, although they probably take different perspectives on it, right? Yeah, I think so. But the United States as a whole over, over its history has been primarily an institutionalist. Nation. What I mean by that is that most presidents, at least in my you know lifetime of voting, mm -hmm. will say that. Mm -hmm. um, I've been able to vote five times. Yeah, five times. Mm -hmm. Every four years, 20 years. So um, I've got a pretty bad voting record, by the way, as far as winners and losers. But, <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, but so the United States works through institutions, right? We yeah. work through 
the United Nations. And NATO. We work through NATO. That's right. Other partnerships and other agreements, mm. right? Um, you know, they're not all major institutions like NATO or the United Nations, but we are institutionalists. Our government is um, primarily working through institutions to achieve, uh, in a sense, peace. Yeah. Establish mutual interest. Achieve our own. Realize our own self-interest. Yeah. Right. Stability. Stability. Economic prosperity. Mm-hmm. Our own independence and freedoms in which each nation, uh, of course, in some sense benefits from, though the United States has probably been the largest benefactor over the last several decades Mm -hmm. of those international institutions. But kind of looking at post-World War, we were, uh, we grew into the global hegemon ourselves. Yeah, because everyone was, a lot lot of the countries were destroyed or in horrible situations after World War II. So there was kind of a vacancy that we just filled pretty well. All right, so that seems like uh, we're using institutions and then i guess the question is like how do you balance working with other it always comes down to this like even like as an individual it's like do you work well with others you know (laughs) (laughs) this is a job interview (laughs) exactly it's kind of like you know because you mentioned Mm self-interest and you know in some sense it's it's kind of obvious that every country is going to do something in their self that's in their best interest but then do they do they play ball with others? How much do they put aside their own interests for the interests of other nations? And I guess that's probably where different administrations differ on how to balance that. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on? Well, it's kind of interesting growing up in, in teenage in my younger 20s. I always wondered, like, why do these things take so long? Like, why does it take so long for many countries to come to some sort of agreement right and then you think yeah. about it well if every country is coming to the table with their own self-interest yeah that's going to take a long time to hash out right like think about like um some of the more challenging things that maybe you and your wife have worked through right you're both mm-hmm. coming to the table with your own self-interest to an extent right we are we are yeah. sinners we are yeah. uh, we're sinful people we're selfish people right we, we come to the negotiating table in a sense and and you have to compromise, you know, it's a little bit of give and take. So now mm-hmm. we have to imagine that nations are coming together and they're trying to do the same thing. But there's also the theory of realism in that, like, every country that's operating from a position of self-interest doesn't want to be conquered. They want to achieve their own self-interest. In that, in that theory, there is no, you know, global governing body. There really isn't a global governing body. Yeah. You could make the argument that the global governing body for the last several decades has been the United States because of the uh, western hegemon that we are and (laughs) the influence that we have the influence that we have absolutely but there's there's anarchy right there is no governing body of 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 global politics right even the united nations doesn't really count in that regard i mean well not every nation is a member that's true right that's true so it it it's not a global governing body yeah right many nations are members but many nations are not yeah so there's no global governing body there's anarchy in the world because of it Nations operate from a position of fear, mm. right? If you're the big guy, less fear. If you're the small guy, you're the little guy in the room, a lot more fear because you're more easily conquered. That's the theory, yeah. That's the theory, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's through these institutions, through these partnerships, from the United States' perspective, that the, the peace can be achieved, mm-hmm. nations can have sovereignty, economic prosperity, yeah. so forth and so on. Yeah. I think I... I skipped over your original question, though, about different administrations. Yeah. Well, I was just curious about, because I can't imagine, you mentioned before, like different administrations, different goals. I can't imagine that they're all doing the same thing. 
and it kind of they change a little bit. Yeah, they do change a little bit. So the looking at the last two admin, so the current administrations of the Biden administration, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then the Trump administration, there's some marked differences mm-hmm. uh, just in reviewing their national security strategies. In that Trump primarily uh, operated from a realist perspective. Okay. Um, so the world is in, in anarchy. There's no global governing body. Um, operating from uh, the position of fear, obviously less fear than the little guy because we're the big guy in the room, mm-hmm. but um, very uh, realist, right? And we saw that, right? Like, make America great again, America first, mm-hmm. right? You know, Trump was still interested in using institutions, but was also very clear in saying that they, he would back out of agreements. And we saw that if it didn't yeah. very uh, strongly benefit the United States. Mm. Um, you know, I think the, you know, NAFTA comes to mind. Uh, and how he treated um, and interacted with the nations that are members of or, or, or participate in NAFTA. Yeah. Whereas Biden, on the other hand, emphasized working through institutions, right? So um, much more of an institutionalist versus a realist that Trump was. And seeing how those institutions and those agreements, those pacts, whatever, could have an impact on economic prosperity, promoting democracy, things like that, um, was more of a uh, liberal institutionalist perspective as compared to Trump, which was much more of a realist uh, perspective. Yeah, and you mean liberal not as in like left, more like liberals in the more classical understanding of the term. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, and I think that, well, we don't have to go down that road. But that's yes, fine. yes, a, a, an international relations theory liberalism not liberal mm-hmm. as in what we understand it between the blue and red states yeah. today in the united states yeah it kind of it seems like it's like a it comes down to the difference between how much how much do you put your interests above or over those of these international bodies or institutions i should say um and their perspective because obviously what they want isn't always necessarily what you might want and then how much do you say no i'm gonna i'm gonna assert myself i'm gonna assert what i want yeah. versus I'm going to maybe concede the point or re- kind of reduce myself a little bit to more win you over in a sure. way to kind of conciliatory. Yeah, that's right. And the, and the smaller nations, they benefit from being part of those international institutions. Yeah. They they receive a benefit for, for being friendly with the United States. Yeah. Um, off the top of my head, right? Like Taiwan yeah. has yeah. security agreements. We essentially provide a... The United States provides... A security umbrella over the over Taiwan, mm-hmm. um, so those smaller nations benefit from being a part of those same institutions that the larger nations are in as well. And the larger nations then benefit because they have the ability to influence those smaller nations. Mm-hmm. They have the ability to to garner a economic prosperity and trade mm-hmm. um, for themselves, right? So they, they, all parties benefit. But mm-hmm. I think there's an argument to be made that inst- institutions don't always work, mm-hmm. not necessarily the way that we want them to work. Mm-hmm. Now, I think North Korea is a very interesting example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the United Nations and other international institutions have tried for the last several years to, well, last several decades, really, yeah, to influence the North mm-hmm. Koreans from developing nuclear weapons yeah right yeah and if you read the if you read some of the outputs from the united nations meetings on north korea you will see that there are many uh, nations member nations of the united nations 
um, that condemn what North Korea is doing. Mm -hmm. The United Nations, the United States, other nations have placed sanctions and other penalties on North Korea for not dismantling their nuclear weapons program. Yeah. yeah. But North Korea still maintains the development of their program and their uh, their vehicles to deliver to, to yeah. basically... They don't really deliver. care. They about... don't really care, right? Yeah. Their ballistic missile program largely hasn't stopped, mm -hmm. right? And, and the, they've got kind of a, a sordid history of where they agreed and they were members of these institutions and they said they were going to and then they and they backed out yeah. and, and then they said they weren't going to and <laughs> Trump and Kim Jong-un met and it was all nice and then it wasn't nice anymore and <laughs> yeah. that's where we are, right? So institutions don't always work either. It hasn't worked in the case of North Korea. Yeah. North Korea was part of some of those institutions and then backed out and they still have a program for, they still have a ballistic missile. And a, they haven't changed they their... Haven't changed their behavior yeah i see all right so they don't always work but we can work with those institutions and we're trying to to further democracy um in order to increase prosperity peace stability and and things like that so i guess that it seems like it, it makes sense as to why as a, as a country we do spend so much time and energy trying to nation build i suppose like in the case of afghanistan uh, it's an interesting test case that the reason I remember, you know, when we first went to war against the Taliban after 9-11, you know, I'm a freshman in college. And uh, did anybody think it was going to be 20 years? I mean, I don't know. Maybe somebody thought it was going to be 20 years long. You know, did we think that it was going to be like we're going in there to, to rebuild their nation? Or was it like we're just going in there to get revenge if you will. And then it just so happened that once we got there, we decided, well, we can't really leave it a mess. We should probably try to make it better uh, before we leave. And then 20 years later, we leave and it's kind of going back to the way things were, maybe. So is that like a failed example of trying to bring about democracy i mean it seems like it kind of kind of is like so so how comes this i mean you said institutions don't work but this nation building idea i mean is that does it work like <laughs> well i think that the islamic world is is very challenging to instill democracy as we saw right there was a moment in time maybe if i remember correctly like february or may of 2020 mm-hmm um the the Taliban I think who were referred to at that time or maybe still referred to as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan the Taliban yeah uh the Republic of Afghanistan so the uh, internationally recognized government of yeah. Afghanistan and the United States went to the table to formulate the Afghanistan peace agreement not necessarily an institution um but an attempt to establish agreements between in this case two nation states the united states and afghanistan mm -hmm. and a third party mm -hmm. the taliban right mm -hmm. and obviously that failed mm -hmm. but democracy in and of itself right so basically i think of the i'm not reading a definition but a basic definition would be basically it's it's ruled by the voter by by, by vote right? yeah. yeah um is not necessarily going to work when you're talking about a a nation that has a history of being ruled by their religion, mm -hmm. their mm -hmm. government formed by their religion. Mm -hmm. So in the case of the Taliban, right, they are, uh, they hold the belief that the 
country should be ruled according to Islamic law. Mm -hmm. There isn't really room for a vote by majority in Islamic law. It is an enforced law. So a republic or a democracy in Afghanistan is going to be extremely challenging when you have another party, a large population, that subscribe to yeah. Islamic law, right? The, the, the Taliban, yeah. right, for example. Yeah. Or in this case, rather, right? Yeah, a more, a more radicalized version yeah. of... I know there's different interpretations of, of Islamic law, and obviously there's different interpretations of various uh, concepts, jihad, things like that. So, you know, but whatever the Taliban subscribe to. Yeah. And there is a, there is a spectrum, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if spectrum is the, is the right explanation, but there is a spectrum of mm -hmm. the extremism of Islamic law. And on the, you know, the very extreme side, so the, the, the left end of the spectrum would be uh isis isis right? yeah very yeah. extreme yeah so much so that they kill other islamic that we would call islamic extremists like they've killed yes yeah and the, even killing other members of islam hmm. that do not hold to their version of the islamic law mm -hmm. uh, al-qaeda kind of falls somewhere in the middle <laughs> and then the taliban are more on the right end of the extreme but still uh, operate from the position of of um, enforcing and yeah. believing in Islamic law. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, so their idea of how the country should be run is completely different than the Republic of Afghanistan's, who would more more so be on the end of a republic or a democracy, right? A vote a rule by majority. Right? Yeah, rule by majority. Yeah. Um, and that is because of the Taliban's interpretation of the Quran and Islamic law. Yeah. So it seems like it just comes down to, in a lot of ways, I mean, democracy, it, I guess it just has to take root in the right kind of soil. I mean, to use that kind of a growing or vineyard analogy, it has to take root in that right kind of soil for it to flourish. And I haven't done like a deep study of all uh, democracies throughout history, but it does seem like a lot of them come about through grassroots movements so just like as an example would be like well, the most the most recent one would be our own country the united mm -hmm. states where we we already had you know we formed you know mayflower compact colonies we we formed um constitutions and and those colonies became uh, later on states and then those states came together and decided to form the u.s constitution um, so I guess it's from the ground up kind of thing. And I, I maybe we could even go back even further to like, I don't know, England. And, and I, this is probably worth researching more at some other time, but like the rise of the Magna Carta of putting restrictions upon the king that he hmm. couldn't violate. And, you know, he had to respect certain rights and rules and limitations. And then you've got parliament that kind of, comes up out of this and and then you have that you know just who's in charge now is it parliament is it the king and now england you know has their parliamentary system which i know it's a little different than our own uh congress if yeah. you will but it, it just seems like a lot of it's grassroots and i wonder then i guess i guess comes to my question you know i'd love to get your thoughts on this about the the merit or the success of 
putting like putting it upon somebody else like bringing like you're going to somebody else that's never had democracy or very very limited or weak form of it and you're saying here is what i think this is what works best mm-hmm. here is what worked really well for us and and i think you should adopt this so let's try it like you adopt this and let's make it happen you know i, I guess i'm saying it, it probably only is going to work if the recipe is just right for the the people to receive it i don't know some thoughts on on that yeah well just i haven't done a lot of research on it but what comes to mind immediately is post-World War II Japan. Japan became a democracy after World War II. Mm-hmm. Obviously with the assistance of the United States. Yeah. But that is that is a success story of a nation that converted, in a sense, to democracy. Mm. I think there's more failed um, attempts that come to mind <laughs> yeah. uh, only because one, the period of time in which we've lived in which we've served in the military. Hmm. Um, so I think, you know, Iraq is still a, uh, a struggle to say that it's operating mm-hmm. as a democracy. When we look at, um, you know, the, the, the Sunni Shia Kurdish intersection that is happening um, in in that nation, hmm. uh, I think if you look at failed states like Yemen, for example, mm-hmm. um, where democracy never really took shape, never really took hold, mm-hmm. um, Afghanistan is in the process of being a failed attempt. I mm-hmm. think you could say, right? Like, I think if we look at most of the uh, what we see in the news today, is yeah. the Taliban are, are 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 pretty near having control of the majority of the country. Yeah. Um, but my mind goes to Japan as being that example of a nation that converted to a democracy. Yeah, that's definitely one that is worth studying. And I've never really studied it. But like how exactly how miraculous it is that, a, that an imperial system where their emperor is almost viewed as a god, son mm. or a, a, yeah. a child of God, a son of God, yeah. um, converts after war to a democratic style country with almost no military like you go from an imperial bushido warrior culture yeah that really highlights and emphasizes that warrior samurai ethos and then you just in within a couple of years it's 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 de- 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 a democracy and they don't even have a military i mean now they have a defense force but like that whole aspect of their culture changed that's definitely something worth considering and and yeah i, I could certainly see that's an example and you, and you kind of wonder, wonder why it worked, like why it was able to take root so quickly, um, whereas other countries have been yeah. so difficult. You know, 20 years with Afghanistan and no, I mean, it seems like no no seeming success, like nothing has really improved. I mean, materially, things were improving. We were giving them a lot of stuff. But, I mean, it just, you know, we, we removed ourselves and, 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 and it just crumbled. It's crumbling pretty pretty quickly. You know, you'd think after 20 years of investment, it would take a little bit longer for it to crumble, you know? <laughs> yeah. So anyways, that's just some, some thoughts that came to my mind on that one. I guess I was just trying to wonder, like, if we want to think more like, you know, as we think more about democracy from a, if not ethereal, but um, an abstract perspective, like, it seems like government or any kind of government is the fruit that comes from, like I said before, the, the grassroots. And I guess the reason why I believe that, uh, you could argue through history, but as a Christian, I look to the Old Testament 
Um, I have a couple examples here, but the one is the nation of Israel who in the, the book of first Samuel, they, they are kind of a decentralized, uh, they're not, they're not a monarchy. There's no king yet. Um, there's a whole bunch of prophets and there's a lot of elders. So I guess it's just a, a decentralized patriarchal kind of system. But uh, in first Samuel, uh, Samuel warns, against them after they get their king, after he anoints Saul, he says in 1 Samuel 12, uh, verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Um, and then earlier, before, before King Saul was chosen, the people had come to Samuel and said, uh, we want a king like the other nations around us. And Samuel said, well, if that's what you want, do you know what you're going to get? And that's when he gives them that long list of, he's going to take a tenth of your money, he's going to take your your women and make them, make them his servants, and take your men and make them his soldiers and charioteers, and take one-tenth of your produce, and and it's a whole list of of basically tyrannical things and then samuel warns them at the end and he says and when you cry out the lord's not going to hear you when you cry out because of your king and then the people kind of double down and they say no but we still want a king like the nations around us to go before us and to fight our battles and to and to be king over us and so they kind of they kind of get what they want um and there's a couple other examples just in the old testament where whenever israel falls in idolatry especially in the book of judges uh, they start they start worshiping these other gods around them, and they end up God gives them over to um, slavery to these other nations. They end up mm-hmm. serving the nations uh, whose gods they chose to serve. They didn't serve the Lord. So this is very interesting. Um, you just kind of see this pattern of whatever the root is in the in the heart of the people, if you will, the heart uh, brings forth uh, spiritual fruit and. In some ways, at least for Israel, idolatry uh, brought them into um, tyranny and and you know dictatorship and and strong armed uh, rule. Whereas if they were to follow the Lord, freedom, liberty, things like that would would come from that. So, just those are some thoughts I had regarding the relationship between the heart, the root, and then the bearing of fruit and. To me, it seems like democracy or the what we consider the blessings of democracy is more like the fruit that is the result of having a foundation from which that grows. And I kind of, you know, wonder, at least in the case of Afghanistan, as an example, that it, it couldn't take root there because the soil was just not, it just wasn't, it just wasn't a good fit for it. Yeah, I think that's a lot to digest. Mm. Um to say it Sorry like, about that. I said a lot there. To say it lightly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think there maybe there's an argument to be made about the, you know, the soil wasn't able to, democracy wasn't able to take root there. I, I think we saw some signs of promise in Afghanistan, right? Mm-hmm. We, over the last 10 years of the, the Republic of Afghanistan growing, um, the major cities, you know, there's more prosperity in the major cities, there was more freedom in the Ameri- in the, in those major cities, uh, yeah. Kabul, Kandahar, 
So I think there was there. It's it seemed as though it was taking root, hmm. um, but the challenge is getting past a you know a group of people across the Middle East that are not interested in that yeah. majority rule and that in, in democracy because hmm. they are so strongly convicted by their religion. In mm-hmm. this case, Islam. Yeah. You know, Iran says that they have a you know a, ma- a majority vote for the elected officials. But that's right. The, the Republic of Iran. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's foolishness. <laughs> don't don't believe that lie. I'll say that right because they have a council. They have a supreme council, and and sure, the citizens get to vote, but it's the council that decides who the who the you know who the leader will be. Mm-hmm. Um, not the majority vote. Mm-hmm. Like, don't fool yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's not how it works in in iran yeah um, or some other countries even like i mean uh you know a country like russia has a they would call themselves a a dem- democratic style i mean maybe they would i don't even know if they would maybe they would maybe they used to but um but you know Putin has a lot of power. He keeps changing the constitution to. Uh, well, he just voted himself in office until ex- he's eighty-three ex- or something like that. Right? He, just so, changed, he just changes the know. constitution to give himself more power. So. That's the democracy. He voted himself into <laughs> office. He was the majority vote because yeah. he was the only one allowed to vote. Exactly. Ex- it's one of those things where, like, you can vote, but there's only one person to vote for. You know. Yeah, that's. That means, yeah. You know. Yeah. It just seems like it's not like a, it's obviously not a true democracy. It's it's a facade. Yeah. It's just to pretend, you know, um, and even those dictator, dictatorship-like governments, like North Korea, they call themselves what the Democratic People's Republic yeah. of North Korea. Like any, it's anything but those things. It like it's not democratic. Way. It's not really what's best for the people, and it's not a republic either. So I mean, it's it, that's just the name that they gave themselves. No, um, it's a preservation of the regime. Yeah, is what it is. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly. all that it is. Yeah. So it's just interesting how either the nations try to pretend that they're democratic uh, or they just kind of slap the name onto it to make it look good or they kind of give a a faux like, oh, yeah, we have elections. You know, there's only one party, you know, that's allowed. Yeah. But we have elections, you know, and look, we win. You know, we win every time. (laughs) We win every time. That's right. So. Um, honorable mention to the other candidates. <laughs> there are no other candidates. There are no other candidates. They just they get disappeared. Um, so I guess what I was thinking, like, and this could be true for any country. I kind of wonder though, like, because you mentioned the ideas, you mentioned that you know the people, the Taliban of Afghanistan or whatever, they don't, they just don't want that. Um, their belief system, their their version, the per, the beliefs in their version of of Islam. That's where they want to go. Like that's what they want, uh, or a good number of them want that, and they don't. They don't want what we have to offer them. Yeah. What for for Islam? Yeah. They want to realize mm-hmm. a world mm-hmm. that is majority <clears throat> Islam. Yeah. That that is their end. Yeah. Uh, there and, and like we said earlier, there are uh, varying levels of mm-hmm. you know the extremeness of how they achieve that end, but. For them, that is the end. That yeah. that the world is all under, uh, you know, under the rule of Islam. Yeah. So what I want to kind of share is like so this is how I kind of have been seeing things, and I offer to you for critique or uh, agreement or whatever. But like I see the United States, which once was 
at least a little bit more Christian. And I do believe, and that's a, maybe it's a discussion for another time, but that the Christian or the Judeo-Christian roots is what bore the fruit of a constitutional republic. But as a culture, we've kind of, de- you know, we've kind of left those roots. We've kind of uprooted ourselves and kind of put our 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 bet on basically just a general secular materialism. So it's just kind of like what we have to offer now is not so much what our founding fathers would have considered to be virtuous or good and or beautiful or true. But now what we have to offer is, you know, good roads, uh, technology, entertainment, um, food, uh, material possessions, wealth, buildings, schools, hospitals, modern medicine, all those things. So we have a lot of stuff, you know, just a a lot of earthly, material, well-being kind of stuff. And... We're just saying, like, this is the, like, look at all this stuff that we have. If you become like us, you can have this too. And I would say I think that those things, the reason why we have all that stuff would be from the, from the blessing of God and from um, all the hard work and blood, sweat, and tears of our founders and founding generations. Like, that's how we get the blessing. And But now we're kind of taking the blessing and saying, well, we don't, we don't need the past, like we don't need the stuff from the past to have this blessing, like here's the blessing, and we're going to say, this is all you need. And then those countries, they, you know, they, they, they see that ideology of secular materialism, you know, there is no God, it's just a materialistic world, you know, entertainment, you know, uh, live, you know, live your best life now kind of thing. Um, and then they see it and they're like, no, that ideology is empty, or that's just not what we want as an idea. So it just comes down to, I guess what I'm saying is like nations are built upon ideas. Like ideas have consequences. So to, to build a nation in a certain way requires that the beliefs of that nation have to change. Um, it takes an ideology to fight another ideology. You know, we, well, we would probably call that winning over hearts and minds. And I know that we've used that terminology in the military a lot and i know previous administrations have talked about like winning hearts and minds but like what does that mean it, it means changing their beliefs to agree with our beliefs but if what we're offering them is kind of shallow like secular humanism and materialism i don't know if that's very strong or strong enough to get them to sway from you know a form of islam I guess what I'm trying to say is like we don't have much to offer. <laughs> well, I think aside from material stuff. Yeah, going so going back to the national security strategies. Yeah. One of the differences that I see when I read Trump's national security strategy yeah. versus Biden's national security strategies, I think the both say that um, you know, America should promote democracy and our values mm. and, and, and what our values are or how it's represented in each of their strategies is a little bit different. Okay. So what you see in Trump's strategy was specifically stated freedom of religion. That's kind of an afterthought in Biden's strategy mm-hmm. and, and, and only mentioned briefly in the introduction. Yeah, it, it's, 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 it's less religious freedom really isn't mentioned except for for the introduction but what is more mentioned is 
kind of economic, uh, social inclusion yeah. as being a value. In fact, it's mentioned multiple times in the document itself. And caveat to all this, Biden actually hasn't released his his strategy. This is an interim strategy. Oh, in te- um, temporary. Yeah. So the administrations are supposed to actually release a, a security strategy annually, if I remember correctly. Um, but so his is an interim strategy. But I imagine that the the actual strategy will be largely reflective of what is in the interim strategy and and Mm. and there's some differences in in those values but i think it's interesting on an international stage um should america promote christianity Mm. versus should america promote religious freedom Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. as a value to be adopted by other nations Mm -hmm. right and again go back to afghanistan right under the rule of the Taliban, there won't be religious freedom. Yeah. There won't be freedom of religion. And I wonder what freedom of religion looks like as it's contested or, or spread or contested in other nations mm-hmm. from nation to nation. What does freedom of religion look like? And, and maybe even what does freedom of religion look like in the United States in 10 years? Yeah. Right. So should America be promoting Christianity hmm. or should it be promoting freedom of religion? I think those those two strategies, as we compare them, they look they look different. Sure. Trump's very specifically states freedom of religion. Biden kind of dances around that and, and, and focuses more on social and economic inclusion. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Definitely worth considering. And I it's interesting though because and this well get this gets into differences between Islam and Christianity. Because, you know, Maybe get in trouble for saying this, but like, you know, I I certainly want the world to become more Christian and to follow certainly God's laws, and so the Muslim in that sense, you know, the the, the Muslims and the Christians are on the same page, <laughs> but it's a whole different vision because like, first of all, different God, second of all, different law, different, yeah, different God's law, and then the third thing is the method. You know, and uh, and obviously not all those who hold Islam believe in the use of violence, but but a but a sizable portion or or, or a significant um, portion would believe that violence has a role to play in quote unquote evangelism. Or yeah, the, I, I don't know that I would say significant, but a portion. A portion, sure. maybe not significant. Maybe. I think maybe a different question is is the role of spreading mm-hmm. Christianity. Mm-hmm. Does that fall on the government or the church? Yes, that's a great question. My answer would be the church on that one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear. Yeah, I think so too. Now, well, the funny thing about that... And that's why I asked, like, yes. should America be promoting Christianity or should America yes. as a nation on the yes. international stage promote freedom of religion? Yes. It's the church's role, God's design for the yes. church, for his people, yes. the body of Christ, to yeah. promote yeah. Christianity. I think the cheeky, the cheeky answer is... By promoting freedom of religion, it's going to be promoting Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> like the way to promote Christianity is to promote freedom of religion. It's kind of an indirect way. Let me explain myself there for a second. The reason I say that is because despite what many people think, Christianity, I think through most of history, has not really been in favor of coercing everybody to become Christians. Like it has happened. Yeah. They, they've tried to do that sometimes, no doubt. Um, but even even the Crusades, per se, because people like to throw up, throw up the Crusades as the example of it. 
I don't know if it was much of an evangelistic endeavor. Like, I don't think they were really that interested in trying to make the Muslims become Christians. Um, I mean, yes, take back the Holy Land. Yes, uh, you know, pay for their sins through warfare and combat for God's glory. Um, you know, maybe go to heaven if they died as martyrs. Um, maybe make some money, you know, take back the cities of Jerusalem and establish a kingdom there and make sure that there's, you know, they can get some of the stuff, the, the goodies that come from establishing markets in the Middle East and things like that. I mean, I don't really, I don't recall ever reading that their goal was to get them all to become Christians by force. Okay, now that maybe that's happened, of course, but Christianity, if you just go through the scriptures, it's pretty clear that God does not want fakers. You know, God's not interested in people who just call themselves Christians. Like he has some strong words to say about people who who honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Like Old Testament, New Testament, Pharisees, false teachers in the church. Like God does not want anything to do really with that, with with fake Christians. Um, I mean, and a lot of the Bible is, is all about talking about like we, weeding them out, like church discipline, like get, get rid of the false teachers, get rid of those who are engaging in horrible, unrepentant sin, like, like treat them as an unbeliever, like get them, yeah. get them out of church. So Christianity um, is interested in genuine believers, which can only come about by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit through the preached word. Gospel, prayer, fasting, all that fun stuff. So from a purely Christian perspective, I, I wouldn't want the government to say, we're going to enforce Christianity on this country. Mm-hmm. Like, I would not want that because to me, that would be making my life more difficult as a pastor. Like, see, now I have all these fake Christians going to my church <laughs> because they don't want to get arrested And now I have uh, a lot of unbelievers in my church who are just pretending. And it's Um, difficult to tell between the two. And it's difficult to tell between them. And yeah, so I don't want that. I don't want that. What what I would want from a purely Christian pastor perspective is freedom of religion. I want the ability to go preach the gospel, to go share the gospel, to go evangelize in public uh, and not be arrested doing it yeah that's what i want yeah i want an open market on ideas and um speech from that perspective i just want the government to make sure that things stay peaceful like just just make sure everyone plays by the rules and that we're not shooting each other as long as we're doing that you know have fun have have at it with your with your evangelism and your debates and your discussion and stuff like that so i guess Long story short, I agree that the best interests of the church is freedom of religion. That's what I would say the best interests are. If I were to step in and switch hats and say, I'm no longer a pastor, now I'm president so-and-so, like from the perspective of the government, what do I want? Well, even if I'm a Christian president and I want the country to be Christian, if I'm a true Christian, if I know my Bible, I know that I can't just make people become Christians. Yeah. By the power of the sword. Like, that's not how this works. What I do know is that if the word of God is preached, that's the best chance. I need the seed spread throughout throughout the land. So how do I do that as a, as a governor or a president? 
I need, I need free speech. If I give them free speech, that's the best chance I can have, you know? Anyways, that's just my 10 minute little spiel. Israel was chosen to be set apart so that others would know that the Lord is God. Yeah. Right? That's very true. That's very true. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned that, Gordon, because I had a quote here in front of my notes that I wanted to uh, to read. It's from Deuteronomy where Moses is talking to Israel and he is um, speaking on, on God's behalf, of course. And here's what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. He says, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. And he says, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So basically what he's telling Israel is like, you're supposed to be the light. Like mm-hmm. the nations are supposed to look at you and they're going to look at you and they're going to say, their laws are awesome and their God is awesome. Let's be like them. That's essentially in a nutshell, you know, paraphrasing there. Um, and it's ironic though that in just a few books of the Bible, Samuel, First Samuel, Israel is going to reverse that. Israel is going to say, they're going to look at the other nations and they're going to be like, I want their kings. I want kings like that. Yeah. I want laws like that. And then Samuel says, yeah, you're going to get tyranny. That's what you're going to get instead. So anyways, no, that's, I'm glad. So I, I'm glad you brought that up for him because uh, I think that's, that's key there. So as we uh, get ready to wrap up, I mean, the time goes by pretty fast. Um, it's already been about an hour, but what final thoughts do you have on this discussion of democracy and uh, spreading it? Um, around the world so what comes to mind and i don't have it up in front of me but uh the sermon on the mount yeah jesus telling us that we are to be salt yeah right just as those other nations would look at israel and say look at your statutes and your law and your laws how great is your god to give you those statutes and your laws jesus calls us to be the salt and the light in the earth right yeah to to go and make disciples, right? Giving us the great commission and to being salt and light that others would look at us and say, I want what they have. Yeah. Right. And so the church's role, the body of Christ's role is to share the gospel, is to advocate, is to spread Christianity, right? Is to, um, fulfill that, that great commission, um, for us to, I guess for us to do that here in the United States or really anywhere is to have that freedom of religion, the ability to do that. Uh, we're not, I don't think we're going to see that, you know, in the, in the near term, right. Mm -hmm. I won't say the long term, but I will say the near term in every nation, right. To have freedom of religion. I think the long term, maybe post-millennial discussion is another discussion, (laughs) but at least in the near term, it's another hour. hour. We're not going to have that today, but in the near term, we're not going to see that. It'll be interesting to see how things play out as we've talked about Afghanistan and North Korea uh, and Iran a little bit, but, um, for us, as the church, our role is to be salt and light, is yeah. to go and make disciples. And we can do that regardless of the current state, either in America or other nations. And I do wonder, um, in our own country, as freedom of religion 
maybe goes, you know, a little bit more kind of downhill or more restricted, it will be harder because that's just the way it is. It just becomes harder to, you know, share the gospel and things like that. You say something on Facebook or Twitter and it might, it might, it might get blocked. Um, And that's okay. I mean, that's, it's not okay, but like that's life. That's what happens. We'll still have to find other ways to share the gospel with people, our neighbors, private conversation, things like that. But it is very interesting, though, that, and again, this is another discussion for another hour. We'll do this next time, is that why is it that a nation would crack down on speech? Why do nations feel so threatened by speech that they have to crack down on it? Whether it's the Soviet Union cracking down on any kind of anti-government or pro-capitalism speech or Nazi Germany or France during the revolution prior to Napoleon, you know, it's just interesting how, you know, as, as those dictatorships or those authoritative structures rise up, they want to squash speech. Worth considering why do they feel threatened by it? Like why North Korea is so anti-speech. Yeah, I think North Korea is a good case study. Uh, Libya comes to my mind. Egypt comes to my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah, there there are good case studies to, to, to look at that. Cuba comes to my mind. There, there are really good case studies, mm-hmm. um, I think, to kind of get at some of those questions. Yeah. Well, those will be for our future discussions, Gordon. Yeah. So I appreciate you uh, coming on the show today and uh, you know sharing with me your thoughts on democracy. So thank you again, Gordon. Take care. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that conversation. I certainly did, and I know that Gordon and I could have continued on for a lot longer covering a much more wide variety of topics, but we figured that an hour uh, would be good for now. But I do hope to have him on the show in the near future uh, because he's got a lot of knowledge, and I think a lot of it would be of great interest uh, to you. So if uh, you found the show interesting, please share it with friends on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all those social media sites, uh, you can search for the show, just search for Governed by God and put a thumbs up, stars, reviews, anything like that. All of that helps. And of course, if you want to support the show uh, financially, help keep the lights on, you can go to patreon.com and look for Governed by God and you can sign up to become a patron there. So again, thank you for tuning in for the start of season two and I look forward to having you tune in again next time. Take care and God bless.